Well, good morning. I hope everybody is having a great day. Did y'all know that fall is among us? It is here and it is enjoyable. It's been good to be able to have the weather to where it's like in the 70s and 80s after what seems like a blistering summer. Any, anybody else enjoying this with me? Well, today as we enter into fall, we're going to fall into 1 Thessalonians. I want to give you a little bit of background as this is the first sermon in that series. This is about, uh, this is a letter which many believe is the first letter that is in the New Testament, meaning that it even precedes the gospel letters themselves, the first letter of Paul. And what had happened is he and Silas, also known as Silvanius, had gone into their missionary journeys and they entered into a town called Thessalonica, which is modern day Thessaloniki. And as they had gone, they spread the message of Jesus Christ, and the Jews received it, and the Gentiles received the message of Christ, and this church was birthed out of this missionary effort, and it wasn't just a normal church. It was a great church. In fact, it was so great that chapters 1, 2, and 3 is nothing more, nothing less than a commendation of the faith of the Thessalonians, and he just praising them as a model of a faith and how they lived in expectation of Christ's return, and how they impacted their world for the glory of God. And then in chapters 4 and 5, it's more of a challenge to live out their faith. Now that you have received Christ, so live in Him, build your life on that firm foundation. And what we're going to see today as we go through chapter 1 is really the markers of an effective church. And whenever you think of an effective church, I want you to kind of go back to fall, and whenever you think a fall, there's this thing that, that has happened in our culture. What once used to be just fall has now turned into PSL season, pumpkin spice latte season. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? It's ridiculous. On the first day of fall, I was in a Kroger, and there was a little Starbucks there, and school had just let out, and the high school was kind of going, and there was a, a teenage girl with her mom and they were just all giddy. They were walking behind me, and they're talking about how they had their pumpkin spice lattes. And the girl was just on cloud nine, and as we were, were going, I went to the cereal aisle because I wouldn't cut through to get something else, and I could hear this girl and her mom scream, oh my goodness, pumpkin spice latte cereal. I was like, you've, you've got to be kidding me. But it had been like this thing that brought about great joy. And whenever I think about pumpkin spice latte and the impact that it's had, what I know is that we have something that could, could and should create joy within the hearts and lives of people. In the same way, pumpkin spice latte has infiltrated the fall season in our culture. We need to be the kind of people and the kind of church, the kind of connect groups and the kind of followers of Jesus Christ that impact our culture as well. And this is what Paul is saying as he starts this letter to the Thessalonians. This is what it starts in verse 1. Paul and Silvanius, these were the two on the missionary journey that started this, and Timothy. Timothy had joined them at this point to the church of the Thessalonians. And God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. He always starts this way. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayer. I mean, so many, we give thanks to God for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in your prayer. I'm just curious, how many of you constantly mention your brothers and sisters in Christ, your connect group members, your church family in your prayers? This is what Paul did. Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, 
in your labor of love and steadfastness and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also empowered in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we, we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, whenever we see this, we're going to see markers, characteristics of an effective church. And I want you to think in the same manner of an effective church, how you can see signs and markers of an effective connect group. How you as an individual can see signs and markers of an effective follower of Jesus Christ. Because we are a body of individuals who come together to worship God. We are a church of small groups of families that come together to worship and serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we see is that an effective church is energetic in their faith. They weren't a church who just received Jesus Christ and walked in him. They were a church who lived out their faith in a powerful way. And this is what he said, we thank God always for you, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the church at Thessalonica, these Thessalonians, they were a persecuted church. The reason that Paul wrote this letter to them, commending their faith and kind of challenging them, is because as he went to the city and the gospel message spread and people received it, the Roman government took note of this new church, of this new happening. In fact, they were known for their faith and they were proclaiming the name of Jesus and they were saying, King Jesus is alive and well and you need to put your faith and trust in King Jesus. But the Roman government heard this and they saw the name or heard the name of Jesus as a threat to Caesar. And so from the very conception of this church, when they were proclaiming the name of King Jesus, awaiting the return of King Jesus, what happened in this church is that they were facing opposition and persecution. In less than one month from the time that Paul and Silas entered into Thessalonica, they were driven out by the Roman government. Fearing for their lives, they moved on in their mission journey to the next town and the next city. When it talks about their steadfastness of hope, he's saying that even though you're persecuted, even though you go through hardships, even though some of you are losing your life and you're being put in jail and you're being excommunicated from your town and you're being shunned from businesses and people are impacting your family life and your social life and your corporate life and your economy and your personal family is gone, your finances are ruined, you are steadfast in your faith. But you're not just steadfast holding firm to your faith. He says, your work of love, I remember you for your work of love or your work of faith and your labor of love. Whenever you think about it, they were using their faith as motivation to live their life. 
They were grounded and motivated by faith, hope, and love. It was their foundational aspect of their faith. Faith, hope, and love. We just sang a song that I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. The church at Thessalonica had a firm foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, hope for his return, and love to be motivated by God to live and to not only live their lives in a way that was pleasing to God, but to share his love with others. It was their foundational point of their life. And please hear this. We must have faith that produces great work for Jesus Christ. We must have our faith produce great work for Jesus Christ. Whenever you look at this, there were four characteristics of their work being lived out in a practical way. First, they had direct mission work. We see this later on in chapter one, whenever it talks about how the message of Christ had been received ahead of Paul and Silas going. What this means is that as Paul was moving from Thessalonica to Corinth, as they got there, the faith of the Thessalonians had already made their way, made its way to Corinth. And Paul is talking about how as he's writing this letter and he's entering into new towns for the church that he loves and he is encouraged by, that the name of Jesus had preceded him there because the church was active in cheering their faith. It's a powerful thought. And then the other thing is they were known for their goodness, goodness towards others. We see this throughout the book of Acts. That when there was a believer or people in the church who were lacking, the church would step up and meet their needs. They were good towards others that were in the church. They were good towards others who were suffering outside of the church. They were loyal to Christ in the midst of persecution. Rome wasn't one who would just kind of be like, all right, y'all need to stop doing that. Rome liked to make examples of people. And so they would find somebody who proclaimed the name of King Jesus and they might hang them on a cross. They might torture them. They might imprison them. But despite the persecution that the church was facing in Thessalonica, they continued to be loyal to Christ. In a polytheistic culture where there were many gods that were being praised and worshipped, where there were temple prostitutes, where there were all kinds of carnal behavior, they were loyal to Christ and they hung and they clung towards Jesus. They had endurance of faith. They didn't get to a point to where they're like, we love Jesus, but we also like our old way of life, and so we're going to enter back or we're going to accommodate the sinfulness that Jesus saved us from. They held fast to their faith. They endured. That is the work of faith that they were producing in their life. They used their energy, their time, their resources for the glory of God. The second thing we see is that they elected to follow God. If we're going to be a church that is effective for Jesus Christ, we must elect or make the decision to follow Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The fact of the matter is God has chosen you. God has looked at you, and the Bible tells us that for God so loved the world, that means cosmos, this world and everything in it, every person who has ever lived, God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, and the Bible tells us, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible tells us that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. God has chosen you. The result that we have of this is to make a decision. Will we choose God or will we reject God? God has offered Christ to everyone. 
We have to make it as, what are we going to do with Christ? Will we, will we receive his love, grace, and forgiveness, or will we give him a stiff arm? There was a case in 1833, the United States first Wilson, George Wilson. And the, the thing that predicated this case was a bank robbery. George Wilson had an accomplice, and they had decided that they were going to rob a bank. In the middle of the bank robbery, somebody got shot and killed. And in this really tragedy that happened, word got, got to President Andrew Jackson that George Wilson was there. He was a part of it. He was going to be sentenced to death, that he was going to be hung. But they pleaded for Andrew Jackson to give him a pardon. Andrew Jackson responded in the affirmative, and he granted a pardon to George Wilson. When news got to George Wilson that he had been pardoned, that he was not going to have to be hung for his crimes, he looked at the message and he said this, I don't want a pardon. I don't deserve to be pardoned for my actions. I did it. I deserve to pay the price. Now, as you think through this, it's kind of a really random thing, and it's really remarkable that a guilty man who committed a crime had a, time, had a way to get out of this crime and the punishment for it but he refused it. So it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court had to rule, when does a pardon take place? And the ruling said this, a pardon is not a pardon unless it is received by the guilty party. Please hear this. We must make a decision to receive the pardon that Jesus gave us when he died on the cross for our sins. It is our decision to make. We must elect, we must choose to receive the forgiveness that is offered to us by Jesus Christ, our Lord. He does not force himself upon us, but he gives us the opportunity to receive the forgiveness offered to us. There's a, a passage in Revelation chapter 320 that talks about Jesus' stance towards us and the forgiveness of sin. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and he will eat with me and he with me. This painting is a modern day version of a very famous painting of Jesus in Revelation 3.20, and there's something that is consistent among these paintings. And Jesus is knocking on the door. If you pay attention to the door, there is no handle on this. The handle is on the inside, meaning that we must make the decision to open the door for Jesus to come into our hearts, come into our lives, and to save us from our sins. It is our decision to make to follow God for that first time in salvation, and it is our daily decision to make to follow him in the way that we live our lives at work, at home, in our community. We must decide to follow Jesus daily. We're saved once for all eternity, and we choose daily to live for him. A, and a, a church that is having a major impact is not only choosing to follow God, they are an example for others. They are exemplary. Whenever you look at this, verse 5 says this, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, whenever you look at this, Paul is starting off and he's saying, look, we set an example for you to follow and you imitated us. And as you followed our example, the people around you in Macedonia and Achaia followed your example. They're living out what he would later, later write to where he was when he wrote this, the, the church at Corinth. 
In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I am an imitator of Christ. You follow me as I follow Christ. I'm going to give you an example to follow. And then he says, not only have you followed my example, you have been an example for other believers to follow. And remember, this is a commendation of their faith and their action and their behavior. You're living your life in such a way that if people live like you, they would glorify God. And this is, is something for us to consider. Now, if you have children, or if you've been a child, maybe you are a child, you can probably look back to certain things that your mom or dad did. If you're the parent, things that you do that you watch your children do. It might be shaving. I remember watching my dad shave. My dad's birthday's tomorrow. I get to think about him. 77 years old. Sorry, Dad, I just added you. I'm not going to out my mom, but she's five years younger. Anyway, I remember watching my dad shave. And sometimes I would get some of his shaving cream and I would put it on and he wouldn't give me a razor. So I'd get like a toothbrush, probably my mom's toothbrush, and I'd shave with it, right? I'd take that stuff off because he was doing it. I wanted to do it. Fact of the matter is that the way that we live our lives, people are going to copy it. They're going to imitate it. And what the church got right is that they were living for God. They were imitating the example that they had in Paul. And in doing so, in following Christ's example, they became examples for others. We must model Christ in the church and in the world. We must live out our faith in a way that people see it, they know it, they believe it, and hopefully will receive the message of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand this. There's never a time where you're not modeling your faith in a good way or a bad way. Like, I, I know this. I live with a healthy fear of the PK syndrome. Any of y'all know what that is? Pastor's kids. It is a euphemism. It is a term that is synonymous with children who act like trash, right? Oh, the pastor's kid. And there's really only two kinds of pastor's kid. There's the ones who are God-honoring, they live in a way that makes everybody happy, or there's the ones who are just God-awful terrible, right? So for me, I live with the reality that who I am at home is just, if not more important, than what I am on Sunday. And there's pressure there, right? Because y'all may or may not believe this, I have bad days. You may or may not believe, I have a temper sometimes, I have anger, I get frustrated. I don't get everything right all the time. And so for me, if I'm going to model Christ, what that means is sometimes, if I'm going to model what it's like to be a believer, that I've got to have times where I look at my kids and say, hey, the way I talked to your mom just now is not right. I'm sorry about that. The way I treated you is not right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got angry and I got frustrated. I got to model that because my hope is that my kids can look at me in my life and want Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. I have to show them that Jesus is not a Sunday morning activity, that the only time we get into the Word is not on Sunday morning, but that Jesus is to be part of our daily life. Like, I have to get in the Word with them on a regular basis, which is why we do the family devotional every week. We've got a family devotional that we provide to you. It's in your worship uh, guide, in your bulletin that you have, that piece of paper. It's there on the bottom and the left on the, the side with all the announcements. Tomorrow, you'll see it on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You'll have all this on, on all the social media platforms. And for us, what that means on Monday or Tuesday night, just depending on when football games are and practices, we'll get and we'll have our family devotional. Because I want my kids to know 
that Jesus isn't a Sunday morning activity, that we walk with him daily. It's why in the morning on the way to school, we have our devotions. Because Jesus is to be modeled. Our relationship with God is to be modeled. He's not to be a one-day-a-week thing. He is to impact every aspect of our lives. And this church got it right. And an effective follower of Jesus Christ lives a life that can be followed and imitated by others. The question is, are you living a life worthy of being imitated for the glory of Jesus Christ? Now, verse 8 is, is one of the most powerful verses in all of this book, all of this letter to the Thessalonians, it says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia in your region where your town is, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul loved this church. He was a fan of their work that in the midst of persecution, they lived for the glory of God. How when they were being persecuted, they continued to praise the name of God, how they were being persecuted, they held fast to their faith. And their testimony, their words, and their actions, and their deeds had gone forth because people saw that they were different, that something about Jesus had captivated their hearts. And that message had made it all the way to Corinth. Everywhere they went, people knew about the church in Thessalonica. They knew of their faithfulness. And please catch this. What they got right, we need to get right. Our call is to always believe in Jesus. Our call is always to live out our faith. And our call is to always share the gospel. These people not only lived it, they not only walked the walk, they talked the talk, and they would let people know why they lived this way. While their persecution and their suffering was nothing to be compared to the future glory that they would have in Christ Jesus. How they were able to stand firm. They would say, there was a God who lived a perfect life, sent his son Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins, and in Christ we have new life. They would let this message be shared. And the church itself was making a huge impact in their world. And can I tell you that if we're going to be an effective church, if you're going to be an effective connect group, if you're going to be an effective follower of Jesus Christ, you also must be evangelistic in your nature always at all times. And I just want to be as honest as I can be with you. I think it's great when you invite people to church. I know that they will hear the gospel message. I know that they will hear the truth of God's word proclaim, and hopefully they'll, they'll have a life change. But if you want to make an impact, the most effective people we have in our church at sharing Jesus Christ reside on Sunday mornings in the pews, not on the stage. There is nothing as impactful as your personal story of life transformation. So the question is, when's the last time you've shared the gospel? I remember just kind of hearing stories from some of our members. And a couple of weeks ago, we had the opportunity to go over to some friend's house. We're at Matt and Jill White's house. And Matt was sharing his testimony with them. He had grown up. Y'all should feel sorry for him. Uh, part of his childhood was in Hobbs, New Mexico. Anybody who had to live there, you just pity them. But he uh, had some situations that arose, and they moved to Garland. And when they moved to Garland, his brother received Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And his brother would invite him to church, and his brother would invite the youth pastor over. In fact, he tells story whenever he would see the youth pastor coming that he would literally like hide underneath the windowsill and lay down to where the youth pastor couldn't see him and just did whatever he could to avoid that. He heard the gospel from him and just wasn't having it, didn't care, wanted to do his own thing. And then as they were playing basketball one day, his 
friend said, hey, you ought to come to church with me tonight. Man's like, man, I don't need that Jesus thing. And his friend looked at him and goes, look, dude, I just don't want you to go to hell when you die. And Matt looked at him and he goes, well, I don't want to go to hell either. He goes, why don't you come to church? And he goes, okay. That was it. It wasn't theology. It wasn't, you know, that, that he understood every, he just knew that hell was a real place and that people who die separated from God spend eternity there. And that was a motivator for Matt's friend to share the gospel with him. I mean, hell should be a motivator for all of us. If love can't do it, let eternal damnation do it, right? It's because an individual shared Christ with a friend out of fear of eternal consequences that Matt came to faith in Jesus Christ. And now Matt is one in our church who opens his house to our young people so that they can connect with others and hear the message of Jesus Christ. Here's the key. We must live on mission everywhere we go, all places, all the time, for the glory of God. An effective church is one that is evangelistically minded, meaning that we live intentional, that we ask God for opportunities, and we make the most of our days to share Jesus Christ. Because the only thing worth doing in, on earth that we can't do in heaven is sharing our faith with others. There are no more evangelistic opportunities once we get to glory. We must make the most of our days. Now, there was this thing about them, and I think it was a secret of the Thessalonian church that we have lost today in our church culture. They were expectant of Jesus to come back at any moment. They had an expectant mindset for Jesus to show up. Look, look at this verse, verse 9 and 10. It says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, right? They are polytheistic. They had all these gods, but you chose to follow Jesus. Then verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You live waiting for the son of heaven to make his return. They were ready for Jesus to show up at any moment. They lived their life in such a way that they expected Jesus to show up at any moment. Now, I just want you to think about your day yesterday. Think about what you did yesterday. Maybe you watched the Methodist beat the Church of Christ at TCU, SMU beat TCU. Maybe you went to a game. Maybe you had an opportunity as you were shopping or at Home Depot or, or Lowe's or the grocery store to interact and maybe invite somebody to church. Maybe you had the opportunity to, to do something, be lazy. Maybe you had the opportunity to invite somebody to church. You, you chose to do it or not to do it. If you knew that Jesus was coming back today, what would you have done differently yesterday? If you lived with an expectation that Jesus could come at any moment, how would your life be altered? Do you think whenever you're going to engage in maybe a questionable behavior or a questionable TV show or questionable action or something on your computer screen that you would not do it if you thought Jesus could show up at any moment? Do you think your life would look any different if you knew that Jesus was going to come tomorrow? Do you think your priority list might shift? That you might say, you know what? There is no time to wait for me to share Christ with my friend or my family member or my neighbor or my coworker. They lived 
expecting Jesus to show up at any moment, and we have lost that today in our church. They lived knowing that Jesus could show up at any moment, so regardless of what they faced, they could always look forward to what was to come. They knew that the sufferings of this present age could not compare to the riches that they would have in all eternity. They did not sacrifice eternal glory for the pleasures of the world today. They expected Jesus Christ to show up at any moment. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We must live our lives expecting God to show up. And I'm not just talking about his return. We should live expecting him to return at any moment, but please, please, please don't miss this. We should live our lives expecting God to show up at our work. We should live our lives expecting God to show up when we open our Bible and daily devotion. We should expect God to show up when we sit down in the living room or at the dining room table, when we have our family devotional, expecting God to show up. When you show up on Sunday morning, Instead of hoping that they sing the songs that you want to sing, that it's not too hot, that it's not too cold, you should show up expecting God to speak to your heart and life, to transform you, to make you different, to impact you into the glory of Jesus Christ or for the glory of Jesus. When you have a gospel conversation, you should expect God to show up and speak to the heart and life of the person that you're communicating with. We should expect God to show up because God is everywhere. His spirit is always moving. They live their life expecting God to show up. And when you think about this great church in Thessalonica, there are three things that just challenge us that that I think we can apply right now. Number one, live out your faith. Live out your faith. If you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, live like you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Be different to make a difference. Number two, live on mission. Be thinking about the people you can invite to church. Be thinking about the people that you can share your personal testimony. When you're walking through the stores and you see somebody sad or distraught, just live on mission to where you can look at them and say, you know what? I just feel like I should pray for you. Is there anything I can pray for? Can I pray for you now or can I get your name and I'll pray for you later? Live on mission. And finally, live in expectation that God is going to use you for your good, for his glory. Live in expectation that God is going to use you to transform somebody else's eternity. Live expecting God to use you beyond your wildest hopes, dreams, or imagination because I promise you, he wants to use you in ways that will blow your soul. Live expecting God to move and work within your heart and life. Ask him to, and you will be amazed at the result. Here's a thought that we should close. Will we be able to look at God and say, I will be effective by Christ so that I can be effective for Christ?